0: Hello and welcome back to the RevOps Show. We have a very special episode today as we welcome our first ever guest, Matt Dixon, to the show. Matt is a founding partner at DCM Insights, but you may know him more for being the Wall Street Journal best selling co author of The Challenger Sale, a book that Doug uses and discusses quite frequently. Doug sat down with Matt while I was out to discuss information and insights from The Challenger Sale, The Challenger Customer, and some other books to really showcase what sellers are going through today. It's a great episode, and Matt even uses juice for the squeeze, so don't miss that part. So, let's get into it.
1: righty, everybody. I can't tell you how excited I am for the conversation we're about to have. I've, I've actually wanted to have this conversation for about 10 years, I think. So uh, this is the longest anticipated conversation for me. Um, with no further ado, let me welcome Matt Dixon to the show. Matt, thanks for joining us. And why don't you tell everybody a little bit about kind of how you got here, what you're doing?
2: Hey, Um Doug, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. I think if you've been looking forward to this conversation for 10 years, it just means that uh, you need to get out more. Um, but um, but I'm, I'm happy That's a fair statement, you. by the way. That is, that is absolutely true. <laughs> it's great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Tell everybody a little bit about the new book, about Jolt. Yep. Um, I, and, and I'm curious, how much do you view it as, and I've seen some people talking about it as a kind of a continuation, that next thing in the whole challenger, sale, challenger, customer element? How much of it is a continuation? How much do you see of it as kind of just
2: a new look at? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think they, um, maybe I would say it's not like purposefully a prequel or a sequel or a chapter in the story. You know, what we've tried to do, and I know you know the the previous work uh, very well, Doug, but the, what we've tried to do is kind of focus on what is the what is the customer buying behavior challenge that is you know, got salespeople, got their backs up against the wall at any given time. And what we found is that's evolved uh, over time. So Challenger, as you know, which um, we wrote more than a decade ago now, which makes me feel really old, but um, that was a book about um, how do we deal with this this challenge, no pun intended, of customers learning on their own and boxing us out of the the buying process. So you remember that, that data point that we got a lot of flack for, but I think a lot of salespeople, I think um, it resonated with them is that today's customers almost 60% of the way through the buying journey before they ever pick up the phone or request a demo or send an email to a salesperson to have a conversation, which puts a salesperson in a very tough spot where the customer's kind of already figured out what's keeping them up at night. They've already decided who's on their short list. They've already kind of formed their mental model about who you are and what you can do for them. And now they're forcing you to compete on price. So all those things you were taught to do as a salesperson—to go in and diagnose needs, and talk about your value prop, and you know uh, position yourself relative to your competitors—that time is kind of coming gone. Um, but you weren't there to influence that learning journey. So Challenger was a book about that. Then Challenger Customer was about a, um, a a second problem we surfaced in the research, which is this this problem of consensus buying, which I'll say I actually think has gotten a lot worse over the past couple of years. I mean. Zoom like think about the Zoom sales call right there is zero cost to a customer inviting like everybody in their organization to a demo to a to a pitch call because you know again you don't have to fly anybody in and now suddenly you've got like cats dogs and bicycles everyone wanting to weigh in on the purchase decision so that was a story about how do we how do we navigate that morass of consensus buying the problem that that the jolt effect is about is about a problem that I'd argue is always been around, but I think has gotten a lot worse in recent years. And I would argue is going to get worse moving forward, especially through the coming years if we if we have a downturn here, just even in the next couple of years. And this is the problem of uh, no decision. So it's the customer who goes through the entire buying process and then chooses to do nothing, right? So they um, they often express their intent to move forward they agree that they should abandon their status quo they agree that what they're doing today is suboptimal they agree that your solution is a far superior alternative and they agree that that you know the resource requirement the investment is worth you know it's it's worth it to get from A to B but then they still do nothing and, and you know think about the time that that consumes from the average salesperson if you're a manager for your team if you're a CRO or a CSO for your organization, we found that anywhere between 40 and 60% of all deals are lost to no decision. And so, and again, we could talk about this in, in a little bit more detail as we get into the discussion here, but I think this is a problem that is going to get worse in the next couple of years because the things that drive um, what we talk about in the book, customer indecision, get worse when the pressure is high for the customer. And the pressure is going to get high for the customer as cash is king, as budgets are scrutinized, as big capital expenditures are, you know, really, um, there's a lot of arm wrestling and wailing and gnashing of teeth about what are the make-dos on the customer side. And that's just going to be a function of the downturn. But I think there's secular trends that are are making this problem of no decision likely worse for the, the average salesperson moving forward. So it's a book about why do customers choose to do nothing? Um, what would motivate somebody to do nothing after investing all of their own time to go through a buying process, and sales process with a, with a salesperson? And then, what do the best salespeople do to avoid that happening to them? The, so, the, the, I think I think it does. It is sort of a chapter, maybe in a yep. long series of pro, of buying, you know, problems or sales problems that we've uncovered. And I'm sure it's not the last one we'll uncover. So.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the thing that ties it all together is, is the, and I love your approach to the research, um, which, which is you kind of go in and you dig in and you let the patterns emerge. I find, yeah. you know, far too often, you know, we go in with a hypothesis, you know, what would, what would you like the data to prove? Um, but <laughs> yeah. but but the thing that, that, that I think you really, where, where, where Joel takes uh, just a, gives a tremendous insight is, you know, the, this whole, you know, you know, lost to no one, lost to no action, not not particularly new. It's become more prevalent. Certainly it's, it's getting yeah. bigger, yep. but it's been attributed to status quo bias. It's mm-hmm. been attributed to, well, you know, it's just easier not to make a change. And, and, and your point, if I understand it correctly, is every element says, yes, we know we need to do something differently. Yes, you're the superior alternative. Yes, we see the ROI. Yes, we see. Yes, we see. And, and so not only are you wasting a it's a different phenomenon you're wasting the resources you're killing your forecasting because at least the yeah. the status quo bias might show itself differently so talk about that element because I know that's a central thesis that we're doing sure. the wrong things indecision versus status quo bias
2: you yeah you nailed it so um just to for the um for the listeners um here's what we're talking about is you know when we uh, take data and, and just to take a step back maybe Doug is um, what was interesting about this study unlike Challenger and Challenger customer is we use kind of a if you will a modern approach to sales research so you know I think back in March 20 March of 2020 when we're all learning to bake sourdough bread and we're watching Tiger King and all that <laughs> the good times right um good we're all time. watched, uh, That's right. uh Ted McKenna um my co-author and I had this kind of epiphany which was that the world of sales which i think was on a slow march to becoming more virtual you know over time so more of the sale sale was done via zoom or teams or webex or what have you but you know the really important calls the really important meetings still happened in the customer's office uh, you know face to face and then suddenly that all changed in march of 2020 and so we said you know look this is a golden opportunity maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity to study sales in a way it never been studied before so we um, we'd always been fans of Neil Rackham's work in spin selling and very envious of what the fact that that he was able to go and do this this ethnographic research sitting in on thirty thousand plus sales calls, but with um, you know machine learning and natural language processing, we actually targeted several dozen companies. We collected two and a half million sales calls. We transcribed all those calls and then we used machine learning to study them. Um, so it was a it was a completely new and different approach to sales. Again, all looking at all this data through the lens of like what motivates somebody to do nothing? What do the best salespeople do to avoid it? And and you you hit the nail on the head before. So what here's what we found. You know, the conventional wisdom out there is when those customers who say they want to move forward start to wobble a bit, right? They they start to show those signs of cold feet, which every salesperson listening to the show is very familiar with, right? They start the customer starts to talk themselves out of what they'd already agreed to, right? They start to waver and waffle and backpedal and, and straddle the fence and kind of step away from the decision and and again, get cold feet. The conventional wisdom has always been in sales that you must not have put to bed the customer's status quo, right? They must still prefer what they do today, or maybe they don't prefer it, but they just see it as good enough. Or maybe you haven't fully convinced them that your solution is a far superior alternative, or maybe they don't think, if you will, the juice is worth the squeeze, right? It's not worth it, the resourcing and the time and the commitment and the energy to get from A to B for any number of reasons, you, you just have not killed that status quo zombie and it's still got the customer in a, in a vice grip. And so what we tell salespeople to do is go back and, if you will, defeat the status quo or beat the status quo. So we do it in many different ways. The The first way is kind of positive. We, we bust out the carrot and we paint the rosy ROI projection. We tell the customer, oh, you must not really understand how awesome our solution is. You must not have See, like fully appreciated this very clear benefit we're going to deliver to your organization, so we talk up the rosy future, right? And if that doesn't work, we put away the carrot and we bust out the stick, and then we go to town with our FUD tactics, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And we try to scare the customer into action. Look, these customers aren't uh, these these problems aren't going to solve your, the, themselves. Your competitors are opening up a big gap on you in the market. Your customers hate you for making them, you know, use this clunky legacy system that you guys built. Your employees hate you create this burning platform that the customer has no choice but to abandon. And what was really surprising, it wasn't surprising to us to see that the vast majority, like 75% of salespeople, when the customer shows signs of cold feet, they go back and they try to hammer the status quo. Every wobbling and wavering and waffling customer looks like they're suffering from status quo bias. So we take out our status quo hammer and every customer looks like a nail, right? But what we found, and this was surprising, is that that backfires more often than it works out. Eighty-four percent of the time, we're likely to actually make things worse when we when we treat every wavering and waffling customer like a you know somebody in the vice grip of the status quo, and we try to use it, that carrot or stick approach. We make it more likely that they'll actually do nothing. So this was a head scratcher to us, and and it didn't become clear why until we broke down. We kind of took a step back and we said. You know, the wrong question to be asking is what do the great salespeople do to, to beat the status quo? Because that's a, that's a question that has been asked and answered many times over, including, you know, in our own work in Challenger sale or even in the Challenger customer. Those are effectively books about overcoming or beating the status quo. We talk about in Challenger, great salespeople are really good at showing the customer the pain of same and showing them that it's worse than the pain of change. But what we didn't realize is there's a a bigger question to ask, which is what motivates a customer to actually do nothing? And when you ask that question, what you find is there are two reasons. The first reason is the one we're all familiar with, that they have status quo bias, that they prefer what they do today and they don't think your solution is is a compelling enough alternative. So it's a preference for maintaining the status quo. But it turns out that's only 44% of no decision losses. 56% of no decision losses are driven by something else entirely, and that is not preference for the status quo. It's indecision about changing it. Now, those things, I'll, I'll grant the listener sound identical, right? And some people are probably wondering, so you're telling me I either prefer it or I, I'm indecisive about changing it. What's the difference? So let me peel apart the onion just one more layer. So when we look at indecision about changing the status quo, there are three drivers that we found. The first one is the customer who doesn't know what to pick. So they will grant you the status quo stinks. stakes. They will grant you that you are the superior vendor and your platform is what they want to use moving forward. They've, they've gone on the A to B journey with you intellectually or mentally, but they don't know what version of B to pick. They don't know if it's the prime, you know, the premium version or the basic version. They don't know if it's a three-year contract, a five-year contract. They don't know if they should do it themselves or layer in the professional services package. They don't know if they should have X, Y, and Z partner integration that you offer. Um, they don't know if they should wait for this bell or whistle to come out of the, you know, the product group. So they're looking at all these options we put in front of them and they all look good. And they're afraid of picking the wrong one and that becomes an irreversible decision in their mind. The second driver of indecision is a lack of information. So some of the listeners may be familiar with um, my Challenger co-author, Brent Adamson, his his piece in HBR around sense-making. That article and that piece really deals with this problem, which is in a world of abundant information, we as customers feel like we haven't consumed enough. Like we're not savvy enough to make an informed decision. It's the next white paper that's gonna reveal all the problems and show where all the bodies are buried. So we should wait and read that too. Otherwise, you know, buyer beware, right? We didn't do enough homework. We're not a savvy enough consumer. And then the third one is what we call outcome uncertainty. So this is the customer who feels like they just might not get what they're paying for. So yeah, the ROI on paper looks great. Your reference customers love you. The pilot was awesome. We hit all of our, our, you know, the benchmarks and the KPIs we're targeting that proof of concept we ran. It looks great, but what if it goes sideways? And if it goes sideways, somebody's head's going to roll. And you know who's head head rolls first is the person who signed the agreement, and that's me, right? So, you know, as we talk about in the book, like nobody ever got fired for uh, maintaining the status quo, but lots of people do get fired for trying to change it and having it backfire, blow up in their face. So if you look at those three things, I don't know what to pick, I didn't do enough homework, or I might be left holding the bag, the status quo doesn't make an appearance in any of those things. So you can easily have a customer who agrees My status quo is suboptimal. You're the vendor I want to work with moving forward, but I don't want to pick the wrong configuration. I kind of feel like I need to do more more homework and become a savvier customer or consumer here, or I have no assurance of success. It's a big leap of faith for us, for my team, for my organization, and we might be left holding the bag. And so it then helps explain why, when we treat every indecisive customer like a nail and we use our status quo hammer, and that customer is actually already bought in on leaving the status quo, you've already broken their status quo bias, but they're instead struggling with one of these other things. You actually make it worse, not better. So, I'm going to give you a piece of trivia, and I'm curious
1: if you know this or not. And, and if, and um, so let me give you the trivia first. Did you know that the word decide and the word homicide have mm. the same Latin root and they both mean the same thing? I did not know that. No, but, <laughs> but you're well, going to tell me <laughs> the root is side
2: mm-hmm.
1: and side means to kill. Mm. And so, when you're deciding, you are killing your options.
2: Yeah, that's right. You're closing off doors, right? Yeah,
1: right. And exactly. and and so, you know, like one of the things that I've taught salespeople for decades, and yes, I do need to get out more. There's no question about that. Is you know, salespeople go into interactions naturally with this perception that uh, customers don't want to say yes, prospects don't want to say yes, and and so we do all these things to prevent them from saying no. If you could, but but one of the things I teach them is they don't want to say no either. Yeah, Because either one right. of those things is, is closing those alternatives, if if, yeah. if you will. And, and, you know, you talked a little bit in the book about, you know, some of the stuff from Kahneman around loss aversion um, around decision, system one, system two, yep. Yep. Um, they've hooked people up to, you know, brain MRIs, all that fun stuff while people are making decisions. Mm-hmm. And what they find is well, first off from a, impact standpoint, it puts your brain through, you actually use up the same number of calories as if you're doing a vigorous workout. And your biochemical response is the exact same biochemical response as if your life were in danger.
2: It doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's scary, right? (laughs) It's it's hard work.
1: (laughs) And then, and then, you know, you talked about, you know, so we are, we are biologically programmed to take the path of least resistance and not making a decision is easier than making a decision. And so it manifests itself as status quo bias. Yeah. Because right. I'm staying with the status quo because with the status quo, I don't make a decision. That's right. 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 Yeah. Now, I actually think that the numbers are bigger than what your study shows. Mm-hmm. I'm going to save that for, for, for a minute because I want to oh. ask you, in in challenge customer, you did a great job of of really articulating the consensus problem. Um, right, and 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 not only did you talk about number of stakeholders, but I love that you know it was really, um, you know, it's not just the individual; the individual is representing a team. So yeah. you know, it might I, I guess the number right now is about six point eight, but it's really probably closer to sixty eight in interests, if yeah. you will.
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: How, how much is indecision and this trend a a just a byproduct of consent, like how much is the consensus driven element within decision is that showing itself um i remember in um yeah. actually no i think it was in challenge customer where we talked about you know from one to two to three yeah. where that fall off was because there was you know you you, you didn't bring the commonality that that center point how, how much of those two phenomenon are the same how much are they just you know are they just it, it's a comorbidity
2: so I think I so I think these things bleed together a bit. but I, but it to be true to the research, you know, when we did the Challenger customer research, what we were looking for was, um, who is the stakeholder that can get the cut get the this dysfunctional, disorganized, buying committee with you know all these different business units and functional areas and levels of technical users and decision makers and corporate functions like legal and procurement who's the who's the person who can get them to agree to do more than the lowest common denominator but you know what we were testing if we're really true to the data was who has the the skill and will to to break the status quo bias of the group because the group left to their own devices will agree to you know, again, lowest common denominator stuff like stay the course, do nothing, keep using our legacy system, avoid risk, um, you know, etc., and minimize disruption. And what we're really looking at is who is the person get the the group to say, you know what, like let's do more than that, let's let's move forward, let's let's choose a new path forward. So what we're studying is who has the ability to break the status quo bias of this group, which actually, again, I think um, in many respects kind of amplifies the status quo bias of individuals when you get all these dysfunctional yep. stakeholders together and they kind of pull you back to just do more of the same. Now, I think it's fair to say, if I were to um, if I were to overlay these concepts, what I would say is, even if in the, in the challenger customer, we talk about the importance of finding your challenger customer, what we call a mobilizer, right? It's basically your twin on the customer side, the person who get that group to agree on doing something more, um, who can break the status quo bias of the group. And if I were to overlay this new research on that, what I would say is even your mobilizer um, is likely to suffer uh, from sources of indecision Mm -hmm. just because they're a mobilizer doesn't make them a it might make them somebody who is who has got the wherewithal to depart from the status quo and get the group to agree to do so as well. But it doesn't definitionally mean that they don't suffer from uh, valuation problems like what should I pick? Uh, Have we done enough homework or do we have enough assurance of success here? So they may still struggle with those sources of indecision. Then what I would say is um, if you then multiply that across that buying committee, whether it's 6.8 or 68, whatever the number is today, I think the folks at Gartner say it's like in the high teens or low 20s now, which is not not surprising to me. Um, And I think it's getting worse, as we talked about before. But if you think about the natural level of indecision from each of those stakeholders, so now first, then now you're dealing with two dimensions. One is these stakeholders don't want to, they want to stay the course. They don't want to minimize disruption, minimize risk, save money, keep maintain the status quo. But on top of that, you might have stakeholder A, who's worried about, yeah, I, I could be convinced to move forward, but all these sound like great options. What if we pick the wrong one? You might have stakeholder B who's like, You know, I read the latest Gardner Magic Quadrant report and and there's a bunch of vendors on here we haven't even talked to yet. So we need to leave no stone unturned. And then you have stakeholder uh, three or C who's like, yeah, I I think this is great. But I mean, of course, they're going to have us talk to the reference customers who are thrilled with them. What about the reference? What about the customers who hate them? Where this whole thing went sideways? Because I don't want my name associated with that because I'll look like a fool and I might get fired, right? I have no guarantee of success. So you bring all this stuff together. Now you're talking about almost... A consensus buying problem that's way worse than we even recognized when we wrote the challenger customer. So long answer. And then you've to- got then you've got stakeholder five who says we have to worry about the
1: macroeconomic conditions that could cause us to have to reposition our operation yeah. and manufacturing facility, which has absolutely nothing to do with the item that's there, but you know, it's that whole aspect we're now, Over. you know, we're no longer competing for segments of the budget. Yeah. It's 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 all of it. Yep. All right. Here's why I think the numbers higher. Mm-hmm. Right. Because because I think what your data showed is how many times it ends in no decision and which I'm going to take by extension means no action. Yep. I think how many times do you lose the sale to whoever the default competitor was? Oftentimes that's the market leader. So I'll share as an example, I do a lot of work in the CRM segment. Yep. Again, going into that I'm um, I'm actually working with um, a large competitor in that space, and and they're dealing with the challenges of competing head to head with Salesforce.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And I and I said, look, here, let let's say that you're looking at these two situations um, that would be good for competitor A, good for Salesforce. They both fit there, and and this company says make, makes the decision. We're going with competitor A, mm-hmm. right? The and so they tell their board or they tell their boss, whatever, hey, we went with competitive A and let's talk about it being positive, right? The the response with competitor A, because it's unexpected, is, oh, really? Why'd you choose them, mm-hmm. right? If the response is, if, if, if the choice, I'm sorry, if the choice is Salesforce, they tell the board, they tell their boss, we went with Salesforce, what's the response? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and again, not negative, not, not why did yeah. you do that, but Right. And, and so the, like, I have to go through to choose competitor A, the customer has to go through the, the rigors of making yeah. a decision. Yep. Whereas with that default, which again, might not like, that's not status quo. It is a change. Yep. There is action that's taken. Um, You know, how much of that loss and, and of course, you know, the reports come back, you know, close lost reason, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it, it's not, well, they didn't have to actually go through the psychological process of making a decision to select Salesforce. That never shows up in our closed lost reason reports. Yeah. A- am, am I on point? Like, does
2: that fit with your model of the data or am I, I think, you know it's, it's hard to tease it out in the data, but I think your argument is, um, is really strong is that, look, there, there are differences, even when you look at, so if you take the, if you take the, the no decision, which is uh, inaction, like losses due to inaction, and then if you look at the losses due to action, uh, clearly a, a chunk of those are we went with a competitor. And what's interesting there is, you know, when you talk about the, the safe choice in any market, um, that uh, it, there is some bleed here, right? Because it is indecision about going with the, you know, the upstart player, the disrupt, you know, sure, it's, man, it looks great. It's awesome. But nobody ever got fired for buying from IBM, right? <laughs> the, old, uh, the old adage. And so there is some bleed in there for sure that it might be indecision which caused them to actually go with the quote unquote safer competitor. you know you hit on this you hit on this um, idea before Doug that we we go into some detail on in the book. one of the things we did because some of the things we found in the data were, were really surprising and unexpected to us and so we went back and read a lot of cognitive psychology and behavioral economics work and you referenced some of it before, and um, one of the things we we go into detail on tries to explain why is it that customers get so wrapped around the axle with these problems and they just cannot move forward and they choose to do nothing um, is this idea of loss aversion and prospect theory. But it, there's a wrinkle here. I think most salespeople are familiar with this. It's why we dial up the FUD because people are wired to avoid loss and more than they're wired to maximize gain. And so we try to play to that fear, right? That, that concern, um, that, that fear that they might lose out by doing nothing. But what we found is if you unpack it at one level deeper, there's actually two types of loss that people get worried about. One is the loss from doing nothing and the loss, the other is the loss from doing something. And what we find is, um, and this is backed up by decades of social science research, is that it's the loss from doing something that is more weighty on right? It's more, it's weighs heavier on our minds than the loss of doing nothing. And and some of that gets into, you know, uh, personal consequences and perception and, and what will, what will I look like if I choose to take action and it turns out to have been a big mistake, it's all yeah. going to come back on me. It might mean my job. It's certainly going to mean lost face and reputation, I'll have egg on my face, lost reputation and, and uh you know perception within my organization and by my team etc for having made a boneheaded decision and again that's why people will given choice a and choice b even if it to the same exact um, uh, outcome they'll choose uh missing out over messing up they're okay with missing out they're not okay with messing up and so the solution there and it's not to say Forget the status quo, it doesn't matter. Remember, 44% of our losses to an action are because the customer does not agree. They prefer right. the status quo, right? Yep. You, you not, you're not going to collect 200 bucks and pass go if you do not beat the status quo. There's lots of great thinking out there about how to do it. Salespeople have been trained to do it for years and years and years. And I would argue that's where most sales training has really been focused. But beating the status quo is about uh, dialing up the fear of not purchasing or not acting, right? Right. Beating or overcoming indecisions different. It's about dialing down the fear of purchasing, right? So, how do we get the customer more comfortable with the fact that they are not making a huge mistake? And as a salesperson, you've got to understand when it's time to use your status quo hammer and when it's time to overcome indecision. When do you toggle from one playbook to the next?
1: And and, and and I want to circle to that. I got I got a small question for you, then I'm gonna then I'm gonna share a thought which will put us right yeah, back yeah. Into, into where you were. When when you did your analysis about win rates, um my my assumption is it's based on number of opportunities, yeah, so um, did you or are you able to do that analysis on dollar value of opportunities? Uh, so uh,
2: yes, but um but here's why we didn't. so we we looked at a huge sample of calls from a, or or sales opportunities across a wide range of companies and because of the breadth of the sample, we had pretty transactional product gotcha. sales, like more inside sales or. Um, what have you? Kind of one to two calls, right? And those tend to be lower dollar value. Then we had really complex, high dollar value deals, and so we we wanted to look at what's the what's the tie that binds across this. So it's not to say we couldn't, but uh, but we didn't look at it that way. The second thing I would tell you, there's a wrinkle in the research which was surprising, is that um, one of the techniques, and we talk about this in the the Joel playbook, and wh- how do you get that customer comfortable? that they are not making a big mistake, um, you know, um, dial down the fear of purchasing. And one of the ways you do it is you de-risk the purchase for the customer. And one of the things we found that best salespeople do is actually encourage the customer to, you know, whose eyes will often get bigger than their stomachs, right? I wanna roll this out enterprise-wide. We want all the bells and whistles. You know, I'm gonna take this, what was a $100,000 proposal, now it's a million dollar thing. And and the average salesperson's like, oh man, this is gonna make my year. I'm going to Cancun, this is amazing. But your best salespeople are looking at that and they're saying, mm, that is a deal that is going to require tons of consensus. I may never get it sold. It's going to amplify your indecision. And what I'm going to do instead is encourage you to actually start a little bit smaller and we'll structure the contract so we can scale it up quickly. But that is my way of de-risking it and making you more comfortable to move forward and act. I don't disagree that that works. And clearly you have the data that supports it, but
1: I am going to challenge you on, on another mode to that. I want to hit on something... Um, and that's an interesting point, which now completely takes away the, 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 the conversation on dollar value. I'll share you, I'll share thoughts with you on that just later. Just some interesting sure. stuff we've seen in general. So when, when I first saw the promotion that came out, that your new book was coming out, I actually took a screenshot of, of, of the back. Cause there was something that, that brought so much insight. It, it, it stuff that I, I would take like 10 minutes to explain and you did it in basically <laughs> half a sentence. So, um, hence why so you have the best selling books right
2: now and i do not <laughs> i don't say anything in a half a second that's that's very generous no. of you <laughs> no half
1: a sentence in, in oh, a sentence, the written part even that <laughs> because it completely gets wrong the primary driver behind purchase decision making here's the key part once purchase intent is established yeah customers no longer care about succeeding what they really care about is not failing yeah um and and So I have found. Well, first off, I think that the entire sales paradigm gets that wrong because we still, um, you know, uh, Daniel Pink in his um, in his you know human sell I forget to sell a human human. talking about the fact he he talked about the fact that that you know today's selling is different in kind. It's not different in degree, and that's the problem that we're having because it's still the same underlying um, vocabulary that we're using, and so we're still steep. For all of this advancement, we're still steep at its core at a feature benefit based paradigm, right? Which is, you know, do a benefit summary, remind everybody about how happy they're going to be, right? Right. How good is this going to be as opposed to, and I see like, this is where I get the most resistance from salespeople when I I coach and train them or when I'm co-selling with a large organization is early on, I go into a conversation about why this will fail. And I do it early. Yeah. I say let's talk about why this is going to fail. Yeah, right. And and my goal is I want to come up with at least twice the number of reasons that they have yeah. for why something will fail. Yeah. And 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 the reason is cuz I think a large part of be risking it and and when we think about when we think about the decision I'm going to I'm I'm going to challenge you to go into some of the behavioral research here a little bit cuz sure. I think some of it is 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 related to overcoming the bias, but some of it is just related to the decision we talked about. And you mentioned, "Hey, if this goes wrong, I could get fired." Mm-hmm. Yet we also know that the number of people—it's kind of like you know razor blades and candy on Halloween—the number of people that have actually gotten fired because of one decision, probably not. I know a guy even. who knows a guy who knows a guy. Right. <laughs> yeah. But but what it is is the status quo creates a paradigm, a feeling of certainty. Status quo feels like there's no change, yep. and and for all of the benefit that you're going to bring, et cetera, there is uncertainty. I kind of call I call this the Cujo effect. Yeah, uh, you're going. What the heck does that mean? Well, if you read the book Cujo. Tujo was the scariest damn dog you've ever, like, you can't even think about it. Christine, same thing. Scary. First podcast, we referenced Stephen King in sales, but yes. <laughs> when 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 you, when you saw the movie, yeah. it was a St. Bernard. Yeah. Right? And, and so <laughs> when, you know, the problem is when we're talking about the future and so forth, um, we're dealing with the imagination, which is, yeah, yeah. you know, which, which, which expands, expands, expands. And so you've got uncertainty versus certainty. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so I think, like what happens is we keep, not only are we doubling down on the FUD factor, but we keep doubling down on how good you're going to be instead of making it clear, here's the path here's and here's how we're going to manage in yeah. case of failure. Yeah, it's you, like when we go to the doctor, the doctor tells us, hey, if I'm going to operate on you and there's an X percent chance you won't wake up from the surgery. Yeah. But you know what? You have to do it anyways.
2: Yeah. You've hit on a bunch of things here. So um, one you know, when I love that, that idea you mentioned earlier, which is going and talking about all the reasons this is going to fail. And I think there's this theme that, that cuts across the book. We tried to, it was hard to kind of pepper this in, you know, across. It just didn't work from a book construct perspective, but there's a chapter in there about shifting from salesperson to becoming a buyer's agent. And right. And what does that mean? And there's this idea in there that you've hit on um, with this technique of surfacing failure points early on and all the, all the, you know, all the pitfalls and all the landmines, and let's get it on the table. There's a bunch of stuff going on there. One is you're overcoming um, what's called the agency dilemma or the principal-agent dilemma, which is this fundamental problem that you know. Look, we always talk about in sales becoming a trusted advisor, and it's kind of an overused term. It's so overused that like it's only become almost meaningless for salespeople. But there's really important thinking in there, which is the trust factor. You know, at on at moment one in the first interaction doesn't doesn't exist and so you've got to build it with your customer and you've got to show them because of the information asymmetry that exists between the customer and the salesperson the salesperson is always going to know more than the customer you know all the things that could go wrong you know all the customers that actually hate your platform you know all the things that have blown up and all the people who got fired for buying your solution you're not going to tell the customer about this stuff but but are you right are you actually going to make explicit look here are all the things that could go wrong let's get it all on the table now and that helps the customer see this person is not trying to dupe me. They're not trying to put one over on me. They're trying not trying to oversell me. It comes in different moments. One of them, as you talk about, getting those failure points on the table. But the other one, you know, telling customers what they shouldn't buy. Hey, I know you're you really love this capability, but I gotta tell you, it's pretty new. It, I don't really know that's ready for prime time. Give it a year, and then let's add it to your your pack, uh, platform or your package, right? Or yeah, I know you're looking at the premium version, but I think the basic version, at least for year one, is going to be plenty let's spend spend your dollars elsewhere right there are these moments that happen in the sale even even maybe saying to the customer who's talking up benefits that you know for a fact your platform is not as good at or your solution is not as good at as your competitors saying you know what uh, you, that's not actually where our that's not our strength that's not the core of our value prop we can do that but our competitors are actually a lot better at that that's where they've chosen to focus in fact i know people over there i'll put you in touch with them if you'd like like those are gutsy moments. I like think of the, the average salesperson is not going to do what you just said, which is open that Pandora's box of failure points and get it all on the table. But when you do it, it is such a powerful moment because now the salesperson sees you or the customer sees you as on their side, right? That is that is just a phenomenal uh, technique that again, builds that sort of foundation of trust. And then from there we can go and we can use some of these other behaviors, which again, I know we'll we'll talk about, but you said you said a bunch of stuff. That was only the first point, and the other ones are going to come back to me later. But uh, but there was a ton. There was a lot wrapped up in there. But I think there is this really important point that salespeople tend to overlook, which is remember your customer doesn't trust you in the beginning. You've got to build that.
1: And 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 some of it is they don't trust anything because you're dealing right. with change, and change is a scary place. Um. So so here's the, the you know another technique that I take is I want to I want to redefine risk. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, for example, I go into why will this fail? And, and in my why will this fail? Some of it has to do with me. Some of this has to do with them. Yeah. And I see one of the challenges, especially if we're talking about, you know, dealing with bigger problems or change is sometimes we're not going bold enough. Let, let's dig into, you know, why will this fail? OK, um, so this will fail because we don't allocate the right resources. This will fail. Already, so if these are the reasons it'll fail, and and by the way, we agree that if you don't solve this problem, you're in trouble. Yep. And if you hire us and it doesn't work, you're in trouble. So so those two states, you know, not buying from us doesn't save you from trouble, if you will, yep. Yep. right? And and so if we were to add, you know, so so if we were to go bigger, if you will, then what we're doing is we're really hitting more on and and you know and and so like I would fall that into that is mitigating the risk, but Mm. not in the same sense. And where, where I felt when I was reading Jolt Effect and where I really wanted to push back is it felt like everything kind of the the advice there was make it smaller, make it smaller, make it smaller. And I think a lot of times it's, you know, well, it's where the challenger element comes in. Yeah. Making a decision is scary. Standing into that to help lead them to the decision. Yeah.
2: It's a good, it's a good contrast, right? Because I think um one of the things we talk about in challenger is if the b state you know we're trying to get the customer from a to b from their status quo to the new way forward and if the b state kind of feels like a variation on the a state like what's the point right if it's not big enough if it's not gonna put a big enough dent if it's not gonna lay waste to the a state and put us on a totally different path so if you do have to paint a pretty big vision it's got to be a head snapping vision it's got to be bold you know and so i think that's true when when beating the status quo when it comes time to getting ink on a contract though we can agree that that's where we want to go but how we get from there from where you are today to there maybe mm-hmm. we it. maybe it's a crawl walk yep. run right and i don't think that's true Oh, we start smaller for every customer so certainly you got a big deal and you think you can get that customer over the line then by all means you should do it but i think for a lot of customers it's the size of the thing i buy i totally get the vision i'm with you there we are i am leaving that burning platform we're moving forward but how do we get there? Is it a is it a day one? Is it a six months in? Is it a year in? And, and do we do we need to take baby steps? Because the thing is, if I sign up for this huge thing and I spend a ton of my company's money, all eyes are on me for like, where's this ROI? And if we could start smaller, get some runs on the board, prove it out, and then, but structure the contract in a way that we can scale up quickly, takes less pressure off but, me, it's some pressure off me, et cetera. So not necessarily an always start small, but yep. a, be a tool in the back. I do, yep. I, you know, one of the things that um, that I, I think about, we'll talk again, we'll talk more about the behaviors as we get into it. But it's it a lot of this is about trying to suss out where's the indecision coming from. It's the it's mm-hmm. the first step in the Joel playbook, right? Where's it coming from? What's the magnitude of that that indecision? In in my tool belt, I've got a lot of different things I could do to get you comfortable with taking action and get you to move forward. What is that thing I'm gonna I'm gonna break out? You mentioned Doug before, just one other one other thought. This idea of, you know, in actually Dan Pink's new book, um, uh, The Power of Regret, uh, talks about this, that the, it's that the it, if we think back on, you know, whether it's a customer thinking back on their biggest missed opportunities as a leader or as a manager or what an executive, um, or you think about just anybody, right? Like, what are your biggest regrets in life? Everybody goes back to the things they didn't do. It's not the things they did do. It's like I didn't mm-hmm. should have taken that job. I should have gone and started my own business thirty years ago. I I should have gone to Woodstock when I had an opportunity to go, and I I said I was I, you know wanted to stay home and watch TV that weekend. You know, it's going to rain and be muddy, and I don't want to be there. You know, things like that. Those are the things we look back on and we regret. But it's what's interesting is. Over time, those things become, they, they factor more prominently in our memory. And again, anybody, a customer, an average person is going to look back on the things they didn't do as their biggest regrets. Yep. But for a salesperson, a lot of it is, how do we deal with the here and now, right? I do want to appeal to your future regret of doing nothing. That's how I beat the status quo. But getting you to take action is get, is overcoming those more tactical concerns of like, how am I going to get the return that we're talking about here? how am I like, I want to leave the A state, but how are we going to make this real? Did I pick the right, is it option A, B or C? You know, did I do enough research or am I going to look like a fool because I didn't wait three months for the Gardner magic quadrant mm-hmm. report to come out. And if I had just waited, I would have seen where all the bodies are buried and I wouldn't have made a dumb
1: decision, oh, you know? So you're making me take a different tack. Cause I got to I can't believe how much time has passed already. I got to <laughs> ask you this We're question. On, like, question. three. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It, it, um, so so it's funny. I I I wish I could show you the notes that I was writing because um at, at some point I'm like, well, how much is this about maximizers versus satisficers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it was like two pages later, you're at you're talking about maximizers versus <laughs> yeah. satisficers. So, you know, one of the things where I challenge where where where, where I have a challenge working with salespeople is yeah. we th- salespeople have a tendency to think of their solution through the lens of a maximizer. Like, mm-hmm. you know. You know, th- this could have a million dollar impact on your whatever, and you're selling to a twenty five billion dollar company. And I have to explain that a million dollars to a twenty five billion dollar company doesn't really mean anything, right? <laughs> and 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 by the way, this is not the highest thing on there, yeah. You know, on 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 their whatever. So so they are satisficers now. So so with your point about making decisions being, you know, it's important to be comfortable with good enough. Yep. And so satisficers make decisions more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they fit your paradigm there but maximizers are more likely to find the small nuanced distinction of the release that you just came out with more compelling mm-hmm. how do you balance that where you know to some degree we're selling to maximizers in our story
2: but we're taking maximalist was, approach to our yeah, yeah. That, there you yeah. go like how, how do you yeah, did, it's, did, did pick any of that up, or yeah, no, it's it's interesting. So we talk about it from the lens of, um, you know, especially around this this behavior of um, in the Joel playbook. Uh, the J stands, Joel's an acronym. Um, judge, judge the level of indecision, offer your recommendation, limit the exploration, take risk off the table. And we kind of talked about ideas around taking risk off the table, but if we go to the J, judging the level of indecision, we talk about um, a kind of an equation that you want to use. The, the first thing you got to understand as a salesperson is it's. It's not just about qualifying or disqualifying or forecasting an opportunity based on their ability to buy. There are lots of opportunities that look great on paper, right? Great use case fit, attractive um, a company, a customer economics, great target market or industry, with lots of reference clients and case studies, success stories, et cetera. You got to assess your opportunity on their ability to decide as well. There are three parts of that. One is What is the breadth of their indecision? So of those drivers of indecision we talked about, what are they worried about? They worried about picking the wrong thing, not having done enough homework, being left holding the bag. Usually it's some combination of those things. It's often not just one. And and very infrequently is it none of those things. We found that only 13% of opportunities in our study had very decisive customers. People just were not didn't express any emotions or concerns about any of those things. So it's the breadth, the source of indecision. Second is the depth. So it's the the customer's personal level of indecisiveness. And then the third thing is the the amplifiers. It's tend to be contextual. So things like for this customer, is this a bet the company kind of decision, right? Is it all eyes are on this decision? It is a a career badge on the table, career defining decision, or is it an everyday routine decision? Is, time, uh, is there time pressure, right? Do they need to spend budget dollars this year or this quarter um, or not? Are they feeling pressure from that, that perspective? Are there pre- Is there pressure on having made big mistakes in the past that are now weighing on this decision? So those are more contextual factors. But if we click back to those personal indecision drivers. You know, we talk about a few of these things. Uh, can the customer... Um, get to a decision in a structured way? Are they able to engage in what's called non-compensatory selection? Like I can tell you of all the attributes, the 10 attributes, these three are most important. These five are kind of important. These other ones, uh, these other two totally unimportant to us. And so therefore I can look at vendors and I can say, I'm only going to talk to the vendors who absolutely crush it on those things that are most important and then after that, I can gauge in compensatory selection. Now I can start to compare because I'm comparing apples to apples, not apples to bicycles, if that makes sense. We talk about the difference between procrastination and decision avoidance. So procrastination is I'm going to reschedule my call that was supposed to be on Monday for Wednesday. Decision avoidance is, hey, Doug, priorities are shifting. Let's pick up this conversation again next quarter or next year, right? Um, and then we talk about the difference between maximizers and satisficers. Maximizers, from a customer standpoint is are, are the difference between customers who are not happy unless your solution is best in breed at everything right and they will press you to defend your capabilities against your competitors on things that you know you are not as good at and they won't be happy unless you can demonstrate okay. for them you are just as good on everything and look every there are lots of great players out there but nobody's great at everything Satisfyer will say okay I will grant you that you're not as good at these things, but those are the things that are less important to us. So there's some bleed between these
1: Yeah. And like and and there's an orientation of maximizer or satisficer to my situation versus maximizer satisficer to how they're looking at the product. I I yeah that that they're or or to the solution to your solution. Not those we forget, by the way, that you are not the solution. You are a method, right? So anyways, yeah. Um I I want to. We're running out. I I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I because literally I could talk to you all day. Well, let's Um, let's pick it up again. I'd I'd love. Yeah, oh, I love it. Um, So I'm, I'm reading the book and I'm going through this and I'm and I'm having two thoughts. The first thought is, if everyone was decisive, then we wouldn't need salespeople,
0: (laughs) right?
2: (laughs)
1: Right. So so it's kind of like
2: yeah, this is your job. The very fact that they're talking to a salesperson in a world in which they can buy a lot of stuff online without means they that he can't make a decision, right? So that's that's for true for a lot of solutions out there. Oh, I forgot to mention
1: earlier when I talked about once purchase intent is there, think about what's happened in this zero moment of truth world. Every selling organization is pursuing post intent. Mm -hmm. And then we're coming in to tell you why we're the best when if the intent's already there, like we're already on the wrong play. I always always say (laughs) that's the best time. The best time to get in there is before intent. uh, The the issue I had with with the challenger, 57 percent, 60, whatever percent, wherever we want to say is you didn't account for the first two percent or before you were at zero. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. I can be in there. And it's actually, in a lot of ways, it's easier to get in there. It's like once they hit three, once this becomes a thing. Yeah. Then it's like, no, you're, you don't, don't come in until later. But yeah. I, I want to hit this actually, question. We oh, actually on.
2: talked about that in some follow on research, but never made it to any of the books is this idea that, so remember, you've seen that graphic, the big blue arrow that says 57%. Yep. What we said is what we learned in follow on research is the best salespeople actually engage customers before that arrow even starts. Thank so they're, they're doing what you're saying. They're teaching customers, engaging them where customers are learning about opportunities and what's possible. I just need a research machine. Um, <laughs> he, he, here's here's
1: the second thought I had. Yeah, I feel like so much of what we're talking about here, and, and I'm not saying it's not a real issue and it, it, it's becoming bigger, but I feel so much of it is self-inflicted.
2: Mm. Um, I, I think it, you're right. I, I agree 100%. I, I think a lot of the, if you, if so what's interesting, if you look at any of these, and so think about, like if I think about um, offering recommendations, it's all about limiting choice at the Barry Schwartz world of like, go from like a thousand flowers blooming to like, here are the things you should consider. And by the way, this is the one you should pick limiting the exploration. is like, how do we get our customer to like stop doing spinning their wheels with endless amounts of research and analysis paralysis, taking risk off the table. How do I get you comfortable? There is a safety net here. You're not taking a leap of faith. There is a counterpoint to each of those things. So take just offering recommendations. The default approach for salespeople is throw more and more and more at the customer. And when the customer is uncertain about what to pick, you ask good questions to get them to figure out for themselves what's most important. But that just leads to what we found in the data is actually all you do is diagnose, 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 and get the customer to try try to lead them to the decision and get them to make it themselves. The win rate is, is paltry. It's really is well below the average. But if you can couple diagnosis, which is an important skill, with a recommendation, hey, I'm toggling from what's important to you to if you want my opinion, I think you should go in this route, then you jack up win rate significantly. So if all we do is what we've been taught classically in sales is just like the customer's king or queen, they will figure it out. All you need to do is ask great questions and lead them there. It we, doesn't lead to very high success rates.
1: We forget diagnosis comes from the Process that's paired with prescribe. If you diagnose Correct. and don't that's prescribe, right. then you yeah. have um, a troubled patient. But but I also think what happens is, well, we act like we're surprised that they're indecisive. Yeah, we <laughs> act like we're we're surprised that they don't know how to decide. Yeah, because um, so much of what you're showing is okay. Here's what reps do when confronted with this to to fix the problem. So one of the things I talk about is you know roughly at about fifty percent of the process. Do we have clear decision criteria? Mm-hmm. Now, nine out of ten times, we do not have good decision criteria. Yeah. But b- by the way, in the first fifteen percent of the process, is the problem defined?
2: Have That's we defined what? Bug. That's a little bit of that compensatory selection stuff we're talking about. Like, can they? Could they even articulate their decision criteria? And one of the things I think one of the tells we found. I don't know if you see this in your own work, but you know, oftentimes our customer won't tell us who else they're considering. Right? They 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 keep it a secret. Sometimes they tell us, but often they don't. But salespeople have ways of finding out, right? Who else is in the mix? Who's buying for this? They have hypotheses. Some of them confirmed yep. or not, you know, whatever. They work their network. They find out. And one of the biggest tells that they don't have declared criteria is like, wait, you're talking to those guys about doing this? Like, this is like apples and Tuesday. It's like totally well, different. You don't even know what you want, right? Well,
1: what, what what I teach is both on, the you know, have we named the problem? Uh-huh. Do we have decision criteria? It's it's never there and never is an overstatement. So our job is we don't move forward until we define decision criteria. So I don't go to making recommendations or things like that. It's like, okay, we're going to define decision criteria. And more often than not, I'm the one or the salesperson I'm coaching is the one that's actually creating the decision criteria. And, you know, salespeople talk all the time about, you know, well, if we could wire the RFP. You know, in essence, what we're doing is we're bypassing the RFP, mm-hmm. and 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 so what what I see happening, and I, and I'll, and I'll finish on this to get your feedback on it is, you know, there, there's the old you know three questions that need to be answered: why change, why change now, why change with you, yep. and and what what's happening is we're allowing that all to be conflated to the end right? And, and some of that is because of the massive push on quotas and things like that. And so these decisions get conflated, which makes making the decision even harder. Yeah. Whereas if there's a clear, okay, here's the reason for change. Here, okay, here's what that means. This is what the decision criteria are. So we're in essence, de-risk. we're not de-risking the yeah. implementation. We're de-risking the decision yeah. by closing those gates off and not going, oh, well, you know the rep, just they're just looking for what the best best alternative is, where right, which is the sign of it. So, like, how much of this could be solved by a salesperson just implementing a stronger teaching process in the sales process?
2: I think, I think a lot of it, look, I think a lot of it is like you're saying, lighting the path and guiding them to create a good and structured and de risked um, decision or getting to a, a de risked place, um, managing through that fear. And what, what's so interesting about what you're talking about is some of these things, like it's, these are not 11th hour things. These are things that happen really early on, like getting those failure points out on the table, starting to talk about decision criteria, um, got even think about like the propensity of customers to like wanna do their own research because they don't trust you to get them to the right place. So building that trust early on, uh, establishing establishing yourself as a subject matter expert. If you're not perceived that way, if you're just seen as a glorified admin in the eyes of the customer, they're gonna do their own research because they don't think you know anything more, any more than they do, right? Um, So laying that groundwork happens really early on in the sale, and so I think one of the dangers, you're hitting on something without, uh, you know, you didn't put it this way, but, but one of the things I think is really important for listeners is this idea of no decision, this idea of customer indecision is not synonymous with the thing that happens in the 11th hour where the customer hesitates, right? It may manifest then, but more, more likely it manifests in the very first interaction even before then, right? When you just start engaging with that customer, you find out they don't understand their own buying criteria, right? They're, they're not going through a structured learning process. Um, they're showing signs of indecision. So yes, first order businesses business is beat the status quo because if they don't agree that there's a reason to change and leave the status quo, you're not selling anything, right? So you got to do that. But you should start laying the groundwork for overcoming indecision from the very first interaction so that you don't end up with that like, you know, balloon where it's all been squeezed out to the end. And now you've got this massive amount of indecision when you thought the deal was won. And now you've got egg on your face where you're like, well, this deal I was forecasting to close turns out we got to kick it out six months because these people are nowhere near making a decision.
1: I'll, I'll leave you with this thought because you actually just helped me a lot, and you changed a paradigm for me that's going to help. So I'm going to draw an analogy here. I learned from a nutritionist that one of the reasons for for overeating is that we really operate on on two continuums. There's a hunger continuum, but then there's a satisfaction continuum. And so the reason that we overeat is we're not hungry but we're not satisfied. And that, that's yeah. where all the psychology, et cetera, et cetera, comes in. You mentioned earlier about the forecasting. I think we have a tendency that we forecast, predict, project opportunities only through the lens of fit, you know, mm-hmm. solution, problem, fit, if you will, um, economics. Yep. What we need to do is, is put equal to that. And I would say parallel because they don't progress at the same times is forecasting based on decision fit. Yes. Where are they? How ready are they to make a decision? Because the worst thing that you can do and where I think we amplify indecision is when you don't have clarity. And then I go, okay, Matt, so what do you want to do? And it's Mm -hmm. right. And and so I like really calling that out differently. I actually think what I like, I mix that decision element into our exit criteria. I actually think what I'm going to do is create two different exit criteria. One about, you know, our traditional sales elements and the other
2: being the components of decision. Yeah. I I think that's, that's really smart. And you know, the, there's a story we tell in the book about a med devices um, uh, salesperson who told us that, tells the story of two different deals uh, she was pursuing last year. She said, one of them was this deal that was like off the charts, like sweet spot, like super highly scored opportunity, like Huge hospital system, massive budget. They had approval. They were dissatisfied with the current vendor. We we're in with the lab director or the head of ancillary. So like everything, like the bank criteria were like off the chart positive. And she actually decided to walk because she picked up on after through repeated uh, engagement with them that they didn't know how to make the decision. They didn't have any clear decision criteria. Their eyes were bigger than their stomach. So The person she was dealing with was personally indecisive. There was a lot, you know, a lot of pressure and eyes on this. So she decided to. To move it to the back of her pipeline, she didn't fire them at you know from her pipeline, but she moved them to the back. So we'll keep them warm. I'll keep engaging with them, but I don't think these guys are make a, a decision anytime soon. And and you know she got a lot of flack for it from her manager in particular. And she said, you know honestly, that was a year ago. I just checked with them in with them recently. They still aren't close to making a the decision. Then she had another deal. She said these guys were not clear fit for us they weren't a highly scored opportunity but i could tell from the first interaction this person was one of those rare very decisive run off tackle left opportunities and she said that ended up being not the biggest deal we sold all year but the fastest time from first a visit to close of any deal we sold the entire year and she got a lot of flack from her colleagues about like why are you pursuing those guys like that's you know do your dumpster diving there and she said no you know i found a decisive customer and i'm like go baby let's sell
1: (laughs) Um, Matt, I, I, I can't believe how t- how fast time has flown. I, I've loved the conversation. I've only touched on a fraction of, of where I wanted to go. So if you're open to picking this up again, I'd yeah, love to, do I would it. Love to. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank um, you, Doug. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye now.
0: And that's a wrap on this episode of The RevOps Show. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming and joining us on the show. If you're looking to get more insights from Matt, visit our page for details on how you can locate him in our show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to go subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and share the episode. If you have any questions you would like to ask Doug about what they went through today on the Challenger sale or anything sales or RevOps related, email me at hannah at or hit us up on twitter at demand Creator. until next time remember you can't solve your upstream problems downstream